0: One of the most colorful heroes of British history was a general named Charles Chinese Gordon. He stood a mere 5 foot 5 inches tall, and he lived just 51 years from 1833 to 1885. In his short lifetime, Gordon led a band of Chinese guerrilla fighters. He was a colonel in the Egyptian army. He fought the slave trade in Sudan. He built forts along the Thames River in England. And despite some odd and eccentric, quirky beliefs, everywhere General Gordon traveled, he tried to spread the Christian faith. Gordon had more than his share of adventure. In fact, when an actor was cast to play the larger-than-life Gordon in the 1966 movie Khartoum, they chose Charlton Heston. It took a cinematic Moses to play General Chinese Gordon. But Chinese Gordon is best known for popularizing a theory regarding the site of Jesus' crucifixion. For in 1883, exhausted from all of his exploits, Gordon visited the Holy Land for some needed rest and relaxation. While in Jerusalem, he grew interested in the site of Jesus' crucifixion. And after studying the evidence, he rejected the traditional site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And he concluded that an outcropping of rock just beyond the northern wall was the actual location. Even today, the hill is known as Gordon's Calvary. And today, many archaeologists now believe old Chinese Gordon was right. Ancient Jews refer to this place as Bek Asikla, or House of Stoning. In Bible times, this area was known as a site for execution. We know that Romans carried out their crucifixions next to major thoroughfares. It was an example to the masses. Imagine making your morning commute down Stone Mountain Freeway and seeing the road lined with crucified criminals. It would produce a maximum shock effect. And Gordon's Calvary was along the major road from Jerusalem to Damascus. Even today, the spot is marked by a transportation hub. There's an adjacent bus station there. Hebrews 13 verse 12 also indicates that Jesus was crucified outside the walls. And again, Gordon's Calvary was just outside the northern wall of Jerusalem near the Damascus gate. The Gospels don't say, but either Jesus was crucified along the road sort of at eye level of the passers-by, or he may have been crucified on top of the cliff where he could have been seen from a distance. Matthew 27 verse 33 says simply, When they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull. Locals still call Gordon's Calvary Skull Hill. And the face of the cliff has a distinctive skull-like shape. If you stand at the base of Gordon's Calvary, and if you look back toward the old city of Jerusalem, you'll notice bedrock under the city's walls. This was the mountain that once extended across the street to include Skull Hill. In the days of King Solomon, this area became a rock quarry. Between the walls and Skull Hill, they dug out rock from that particular area. They used it in the building of the temple. It was, before then, a single mountain, all the way from the temple, all the way to Skull Hill. Its Old Testament name was Mount Moriah. And this was the same mountain to which God commanded Abraham to go and offer his son Isaac. If Abraham went to the top of the mountain to sacrifice his son, which I'm sure he did, then he climbed to the very spot that General Gordon identified as the site of Jesus' crucifixion. Here's an amazing realization. Where Abraham offered up his son Isaac, God the Father sacrificed Jesus. That bizarre story of Abraham and Isaac was actually a glimpse into the heart of God. It was a preview of what God endured the day that his son was crucified. Over the last few weeks, we've been tracing the final earthly footsteps of our Lord Jesus. From His grand arrival to the Garden of Gethsemane, from the Garden to Pilate's headquarters, from Gabatha to Golgotha, and today from the cross to the Garden Tomb. And this leg of the journey, it'll take your breath away. A quartet of Roman soldiers have been in charge of Jesus out of the praetorium to the place of His execution. Now he's handed over to trained executioners. These soldiers have crucified thousands of men. They're brutal. They're callous. Their consciences have long been seared. As they report for duty that morning, they assume that today is just another day at the office. The first step in a crucifixion was to offer the victim a painkiller, a narcotic. Matthew 27 verse 34 tells us, They gave Him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when He had tasted it, He would not drink. We'll come back to this later. But Jesus refused to knock the edge off of His pain. There would be no volume for the Savior. Notice verse 35 tells us, Then they crucified Him. In 1968, the bones of a crucifixion victim were actually discovered at an Israeli settlement north of Jerusalem. The archaeology shed light on Roman crucifixion, and it validated the gospel's details and accounts of the cross of Christ. First, the victim was laid on the ground, and seven-inch iron spikes were nailed through his wrists into an olive wood beam. This cross beam was then raised and attached to a standing post. His legs were pushed up under his torso so his heels would be touching his buttocks. There a single spike was driven through both heels. And since an olive tree doesn't grow very tall, the cross's height was just a few inches higher than the victim. A medical doctor and historian named Truman Davis gives us a description of the agonizing pain the crucified person endured once they had been nailed to the cross. As his body slowly sags down, it puts more weight on the nails in the wrists. Excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it can't be exhaled. The crucified fights to raise himself up in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in some life-giving oxygen. He endures hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, and searing pain. Tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down the rough timber. Then another agony begins. He experiences a crushing pain deep within the chest, as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and compresses the heart. It's almost over now. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The victim can feel the chill of death. Finally, he can allow his body to die. Often I ask myself the question, Why crucifixion? I mean, it's one thing for God to have to die. But why did the Son of God suffer the most hideous form of death ever invented? Why did God God not send His Son at a time when lethal injections were the mode of execution? Or even the electric chair? A means that's quick and easy and painless. And the short answer to that is that our sin is not quick and easy and painless. Our sin grieves God. Sin not only breaks God's law, far worse, it breaks His heart. In God's eyes, our sin deserved the most brutal death imaginable. This is why Jesus refused the pain-numbing potion. He wanted to bear the full brunt of our penalty. Realize the cross demonstrates two big truths. Both the severity of my sin and the sincerity of God's love. Though the penalty of sin demanded a steep price, Jesus paid it in full. Revelation 5, or I'm sorry, Romans 5, verse 8 announces the good news God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much does Jesus love you? He loves you that much. Once a little boy, he went to church with his dad. The church had a cross in the front of the sanctuary that morning. The little boy asked dad, what's the meaning of that cross? His father replied, son, Jesus died on the cross. People nailed him to a cross. That's when the little, eye, little guy, his eyes got big as saucers. He started looking around the room full of church folk. And that's when he asked his dad, you mean these people? And if the father had answered honestly, he would have responded, yes, son, these people. Who crucified Jesus? The Jews? Well, yes, they played a part. The Romans? Yep, they had a role to play. But who really crucified Jesus? The answer is you and me. We drove the nails into his hands and feet. Our sin caused the suffering. It's been said every man is born with a fist full of nails and he dies with his hands empty. We're all guilty. Well, Luke and John tell us that two other men were crucified that day with Jesus. Criminals were hung to his right side and to his left hand. He died between two thieves. Did you hear about the old pastor who was on his deathbed? He asked, kept asking the nurse. He said, nurse, would you please call my congressman and my senator so that I can die in peace? Well, the nurse thought this was an odd request, but she complied, and when the two politicians entered the room, he positioned one on the right side of the bed and the other on the left side of the bed. Well, the nurse couldn't stand it any longer. She said, Pastor, what does having these politicians by your side have to do with you dying in peace? The old pastor answered. He said, Nurse, now, can I, now I can die like my Lord Jesus between two thieves. <laughs> Realize Jesus made seven statements from the cross. None of the Gospels' writers mentioned them all. It takes all four Gospels to gather up all seven statements. But He utters His first words in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. That's when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. This is amazing grace. Especially in light of the situation. A plaque on the cross. The Romans called it the titulus. It listed the victim's crimes. Jerusalem was a cosmopolitan city and so Pilate had written the charge against Jesus in three, the three major languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. He had written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It's interesting at the time Hebrew was the language of religion. Greek was the language of philosophy and culture. Latin was the language of government and law. And all three had a hand in crucifying Jesus. Of course, this title was meant to incense the Jews. Pilate knew they had rejected Jesus as their king. He wanted one final dig. He wanted to just kind of one final dig into these Jews who had forced him to crucify an innocent man. And yet they took out their frustrations on Jesus. They mocked. They blasphemed. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. It's interesting, these mockers, they wanted a Christ, just not a crucified Christ. Jesus was proving that he was the Messiah by going to the cross, by accepting the cross. But in their minds, being a savior, being a king, meant coming down off the cross. You see, the Jews wanted miracles, not sacrifice. And the same is true with people today. Folks look for heroes. People who will champion the human spirit. Who will make us all feel good about ourselves. They want poster boys for the good in man. Folks don't mind a miracle working Christ. Or a moral example. Or the embodiment of love. But a suffering Savior. That's another matter. Folks today like Jews of old. They prefer a Christ without a cross. A crucified Christ means we're all messed up. Something is terribly wrong with the human race. The cross spotlights human depravity, not human potential. Only humble and repentant people, only people who admit their sin and need for forgiveness desire a crucified Christ. Well, the Jews at the foot of the cross, they were those who had screamed, crucify Him. They're now mocking and hurling insults. The Romans are pounding in the nails and manufacturing pain. His disciples, where are they? They've forsaken Him. They've denied Him. But Jesus prays for them all. And He prays for every other sinner who's held a hammer in His hand. In fact, He's praying for your forgiveness as well. From the Garden of Eden onward, Man has rebelled against his Creator, and yet God keeps loving and wooing and reaching and longing for us to return to Him. And never more so than when He hung from that cross. You See, if people had known God's heart, if they had just taken time to listen to Jesus, it would have never come to this. They would have fallen on their faces in gratitude and in surrender. Instead, they're now blinded by ignorance. And apparently, while the Jews were seething and sneering, the Roman soldiers, they were gambling. They were shooting craps for his cloak. Verse twenty thirty five of Matthew 27 tells us that the soldiers divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's a quote from Psalm 22. Over and over as Jesus suffers, He fulfills Scripture. All that occurred on the cross that day had been foretold by God thousands of years beforehand. Luke 23 verse 39 gives us the dialogue between the two thieves. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Him saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. This guy joins in with the jeering Jews. But the other answering rebuked Him saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Like Pilate, this fellow saw that Jesus was innocent. And yet he goes further than the governor. He acts on the truth he knows. A thief even has faith. He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. You know, the Greek word that Luke chooses for criminal meant one who, has, one who uses violence to rob openly. Which means this man wasn't being crucified for credit card theft. I mean, this wasn't a white-collar criminal. This was an armed robber. This was a guy guilty of mayhem and murder. On earth, he undoubtedly deserved a capital sentence, but in eternity, God promised promised him paradise. And why? Well, obviously, his salvation had nothing to do with the work of his hands. They were nailed to a piece of wood. It had nothing to do with him going places to serve Jesus. His feet were also nailed to that same piece of wood. It certainly wasn't because he went out and joined a church. Man, if you're nailed to the cross, it's kind of hard to get out to church. There was only one thing this man could do, and that was believe. He looked to Jesus for his salvation. This was all he could do. But hey, it was all he had to do. We all come to God the same way, by grace through faith. I often think of this boy's poor parents. They went to bed every night after this day, thinking that their son was frying on the grill in hell. But you never really know what happens in a person's heart in those final few seconds. You never do. There is such a thing as a deathbed conversion. I've heard it put, God included one deathbed conversion in the Bible to give us hope, but only one, not to create any false hope. You you may die an instant death and not get a final chance. There are no guarantees. This is why if you don't know Jesus, you need to come to Him today. It could be your last opportunity. Well, it's fitting that John, of all the four gospel writers, mentions a touching act by Jesus on behalf of His mother. John 19 verse 26 tells us, When Jesus saw His mother and the disciples whom He loved standing by, which was John's way of referring to Himself, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son! And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Mary's husband Joseph had died much earlier. Jesus was her elder son. And now he turns the care of his mother over to the apostle John. Obviously, this was a big honor for John. Jesus trusted him. Also, since John was the youngest of the disciples, he probably stood to live the longest. You know, it's appalling, really, what Roman Catholicism has done to Mary. She wasn't sinless. She certainly wasn't a perpetual virgin. In fact, she had sons and daughters afterwards. She wasn't a savior. She wasn't divine. She had no more clout with God than any other believer. Mary was just a wonderful girl. But she was a wonderful girl. Of all Jesus' disciples, it's possible Mary made the greatest sacrifices to follow her Lord. Three decades earlier, her whole world had been turned upside down by the news that she would miraculously birth a child. Now at the foot of the cross, she watches this child brutally tortured and executed. Though her sacrifice had no atoning side effects, her surrender to the will of God is an example to us all. Shows us what true, costly commitment looks like. Imagine Mary's thoughts at the cross. Did she remember the myrrh, the embalming fluid the wise men brought to her baby? She now realizes its purpose. The words of Simeon in the temple at his dedication are now ringing in Mary's ears. Yes, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now she feels the point of that sword Mary had surrendered all of her dreams to the will of God, and now Jesus rewards her sacrifice by ensuring her future. He turns her over to the care of the disciple John. Mary would spend the rest of her life under his roof. Now, Mark 15, verse 25, tells us that the crucifixion commenced at the third hour, or literally 9 a.m. He's been on the cross now for three hours. Sometimes the crucified person hung on for days. In fact, they would still be alive as the birds came and pecked at their flesh. This won't happen to Jesus. Matthew 27 verse 45 reads, Now from the sixth hour, or at noon until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. Imagine, midnight at midday. Dark blankets the land. You remember when Jesus was born, the wise men saw a star, a light in the heavens. But now when Jesus dies, the sky turns pitch black. God turns out the lights. And there was a reason for the darkness. Matthew 27 verse 46, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Here Jesus spoke in Aramaic, the language of the common person. The aristocratic Jews and the chief priests, they mistook his words as a cry for Elijah. Instead, he was crying for God. Jesus' shout from the cross was an expression of an unprecedented alienation. Author Philip Yancey writes, some some inconceivable split had opened up in the Godhead. God the Father, or God the Son, felt abandoned by God the Father. Sort of like Isaac's reaction, I would imagine, when he saw his father, Abraham, raise the knife to make him the sacrifice. In John 8 verse 29, Jesus had recounted His unbroken fellowship with the Father. He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. Since before time began, the Son of God had lived in perfect harmony with His Father. Now suddenly, Jesus senses the pains of rejection. Jesus feels what He has never felt before. This is the most mysterious, yet the most monumental moment in the history of the world. When Jesus uttered those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Suddenly, the sin of all mankind is thrust down upon Jesus' sacrificial shoulders. Jesus was the spotless lamb. He was innocent. Morally, His heart was as pure and as tender as a baby's behind. Imagine his shock to sense a single speck of sin. Now imagine the piercing fright, the staggering horror to sense every sin that has ever been committed. For the first time, Jesus felt not only the sting of of a single sin, He felt all sin. The sin of the rapist. The sin of the serial killer. The sin of the child molester. The secret gossip. On and on it goes. All mankind's sin came crushing down on Jesus all at once. No wonder He felt alienated and forsaken by His Father. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 21 explains the plan of God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus was God. He never ceased being God. He lived forever with God in a warm, unbroken fellowship. From eternity past, nothing had ever interrupted the Godhead's holy harmony. And yet for a moment, for a moment on the cross, the Son of God became an orphan child. It boggles the brain, really. But God became separated from God so that through Jesus, you and I could be reunited. When my son, Zach, was two years old, he contracted an infection. It was a serious infection. He had to be hospitalized. They wanted to feed him some antibiotics through the IV. The nurse told Kathy and I we needed to leave the room. It was going to be painful for Zach to get that needle in his arm and he wouldn't understand. He would associate the pain with his parents if they were present. Well, Kathy was smart. Being a nurse, she knew what to expect. So she walked down the hall, but I stood outside the door of that operating room to be close to my son. Suddenly, the screaming started, and I'll never forget it. It probably lasted just a few seconds, but for me, it felt like an eternity. My little guy kept crying, I want my daddy! Where is my daddy? Trust me, I could have clawed through that wooden door. I could have jerked it right off its hinges. But love made me wait outside that door until the procedure was done. And standing in the hall that day with tears rolling down my cheeks, God spoke to my heart as clearly as He He has ever spoken to me in my life. Now, Sandy, you know what I endured when my son died for you. I've never known God's love as strong as in that moment. When Jesus cried, I want my daddy. Where is my father? It was love for us that made God wait outside that door. John 19 verse 28 tells us, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst... Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. This was a cheap wine that the soldiers drank. You know, earlier Jesus had rejected the narcotic the Romans offered him. This sour wine was not to deaden his pain. It was to moisten his lips so that he could get out those final few words. The liquid was applied with hyssop, or a spongy leaf. Verse 30, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. In the original language, it's just one word. Te telestai. It means finished, completed, done, over. And it was used in a number of ways. A servant completing a task would often utter, Te telestai. I mean, it's done. It's off my list. A priest pronouncing a lamb faultless would say, Te telestai. This is perfect. This is a fitting sacrifice. When an artist placed his last brush stroke on the canvas to complete his work, he would say, Te telestai. When a customer paid the balance of his bill in full, the merchant would write, Te telestai across the ledger, paid in full. On the cross, Jesus did all this and more. He completed the task, the mission that He had been sent to do. He was the flawless, sinless sacrifice. He perfected God's masterpiece of redemption. And He settled our account. The penalty for our sin is now paid in full. You see, on the cross, Jesus tied up all of the loose ends relating to our salvation. All that had been dangling, unfinished, since the beginning of time. Jesus completed the puzzle... He filled up all that had been lacking. On the cross, Jesus perfected God's redemption. And all that comes afterwards is a realization of that work. Once an eccentric old evangelist named Alexander Wooten, he was visited by a desperate young man who asked frantically, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Wooten replied, "Ah, it's too late. The man wouldn't take no for an answer. He begged. He said, please, is there anything I can do to be saved? The old evangelist, he explained, it's too late for you to do anything. The work has already been done. All you have to do is believe. And that, my friends, is our glorious gospel. In Luke 23 verse 46, we find Jesus' seventh and final statement. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last breath. John 19 verse 30 tells us that Jesus bowed His head as He gave up His spirit. That word translated bowed, it means to recline your head on a pillow. It was as if Jesus had finished His work and now He's laying His head into His Father's lap. Hey, Jesus was nobody's victim. He was the victor. He had called the shots throughout His crucifixion. No one took His life. Our Lord laid it down voluntarily. And though most of the crowd on earth was oblivious to what had just happened in heaven, God's creation knew. Nature itself erupted now with appropriate praise. Matthew records three miracles that occurred in that moment. First, the colossal temple veil was torn. This curtain was huge. It was heavy. It took an army of priests to move. The veil Represented the separation between God and man. But now. Now that Jesus has paid the penalty of our sin. God opens the door. He splits the veil. Heaven holds an open house. And Matthew is specific. It tore from top to bottom. Salvation flows downward. It's initiated by God's grace. Not our goodness. Today the only thing that can separate you from God. Is your refusal to put your trust in Jesus Christ. And Matthew writes of more miracles. And the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were open. I mean, nature reacts to our glorious redemption. The earth realizes that sin's curse is only temporary. The ground rumbles, the rocks break forth with praise. Even a few of the graves in Jerusalem popped open. Notice it was snap, the veil tore, crackle, the rocks split, pop, the graves open. It was snap, crackle, pop. Matthew writes, And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Wow! We're told of it here, but apparently it doesn't occur until after Jesus' resurrection. But Jesus' victory over death, hell, and the grave, it shook up the underworld! It sent some of Jerusalem's corpses bursting to life in a gesture of celebration and praise for Jesus. It's now Jesus who holds the keys to life and death. Nature was impressed, as was a crusty old centurion. Matthew 27 verse 54 tells us, So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. this was a hard battle scarred guy I mean he's callously come to work every single day to crucify men and he thinks this is just another day at the office earlier he gambled for Jesus shirt but something over the course of these hours happened in his heart he heard Jesus' seven statements he watched Jesus' amazing composure and the sarge was softened By the Savior. You know, Jesus still has that effect on rough and tumble men. He still has that impact on hard hearts. When He gets hold of a heart, the most hard-boiled, callous person becomes putty in His hands. I love Matthew's final observation from Golgotha. He says, Many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, This was the bad girl. This was a prostitute possessed by seven demons. And yet Jesus had set this woman free. He had forgiven her and given her a new life. Hey, Jesus softens stubborn men. And Jesus heals tortured women. That's our Savior. Under special circumstances, Rome would hasten the crucified's death by breaking their legs. With their legs broken, there was no way to push up and expand their lungs, and thus it caused quick asphyxiation. But when they came to administer this mercy to Jesus, He was already dead, and it fulfilled a prophecy. Psalm 34 verse 20, Not one of His bones shall be broken. Just to be certain though, one of the soldiers took a spear and jabbed it in Jesus' ribcage. Outflowed blood and water. Medical doctors tell us that the only time the blood separates into water and plasma is when the heart muscle ruptures. Which means Jesus literally died of a broken heart. It's no surprise that all four gospel writers go to extremes to detail the burial of Jesus. It was important that there was no mistaking what had been done with the body. John 19 verse 38 Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Notice, this Joseph was a secret follower. He was an undercover Christian. And yet, how do you stay silent after such a sacrifice? It's the Savior's suffering that coaxed him out into the open, out of the closet. And boy, in a day when... It seems that anybody and everybody with some kind of twisted perversion feels free to come out of the closet and flaunt their sin. I think it's high time for those of us who love Jesus to come out and go public and be vocal about our faith. There's an ancient record of Pilate's conversation with Joseph. He asked him, he said, Joe, he says you're usually a pretty stingy fella. Do you really want to give away a perfectly good tomb? Joseph replied, Oy vey, governor, he'll only need it for the weekend. It was a three-day lease. Joseph steps up to bury the body, which prompts another secret believer to follow suit. Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Here's the biggest waste of money in all of history. Burial spices for Jesus. That's a waste. Forget the army's $5,000 hammer. That's a waste of money. Burial spices for Jesus. Afterwards, Nick's wife had aloe vera for years and years to come. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury it was a rush job. Matthew implies that really all they did that day was to lay the linen shroud over Him. They were fighting the clock. They, they would return on Sunday morning to finish the job. Now in the place where He was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so there they laid Jesus. Our Lord was buried in an unused garden tomb which makes old Chinese Gordon's observations all the more convincing. For just a hundred yards or so from Gordon's Calvary is a garden tomb that dates back to the time of Christ and is an exact match to John's specifications. Matthew says that Joseph and crew, they then rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. It appears that hell has triumphed. The chief priests have had their way. The Romans have done their job. But a few of the Jews, they still aren't satisfied. The next day, they book an appointment with Governor Pilate. Jesus said he would rise again the third day. The Jews warn Pilate that the disciples might try to steal the body and foster a ruse. They asked for a security detail to be assigned to the tomb. Pilate complies. And so... As the sun sets Saturday night, an official Roman seal and trained Roman soldiers now stand guard over this tomb. No way are the chicken little disciples going to risk death by seal or by sword just to foster a hoax to which they'll never prosper. Besides, which of the timid disciples are going to overpower special ops Romans? There's one certainty. What happens next has nothing to do with Jesus' fumbling disciples. Rather than staged by His followers, the empty tomb was an inside job. It had to be. Jesus saves His greatest miracle for last. For when the sun comes up on Sunday, news from the garden tomb will spread all around the world. Life will change for billions Hope will come.